Good morning. <clears throat> Please open with me to Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through thirty. As we will be looking at the one of the fruits of the spirit of which is gentleness this morning. And these are the words in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through thirty of Jesus, gentle words from Jesus himself to those who are heavy burdened in life, maybe hard pressed with life difficulties, or even your sins. And so our focus is how, how is Jesus' gentleness reviving? And also, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ produce gentleness in us so that we are enabled to show that same gentleness to others? So please follow along as I read Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray, we pray, that you would speak and show us the glorious riches of your word, that you are gentle and lowly in heart, and you revive us by giving us a rest not from the world, but from you and your work on the cross and through your resurrection from the dead. And so speak, O oh God. I pray that you would give me the right words and speak in and through and beyond me, that I would add nothing to your word or detract nothing from it, but present it as your word and your word alone, God, for your glory alone. And so we ask that you move in our hearts, that you awaken us, that you take the blindfold from our eyes and that we would be moved and humble ourselves to your word to us, which is gentle and reviving. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Gentleness in our culture is seen as a weak character trait, a weak character trait that people feel as ineffective, and it just doesn't get the job done at times. It accomplishes nothing, some people would say. Instead, we have to be superior, heavy-handed. We have to be reigning over someone or something in order to get things done, in order to make it happen. But this is actually a wrong view of what the Bible says gentleness truly is. Gentleness can be defined as humbleness, humility, or self-forgetfulness, forgetting oneself. And as we move into this particular fruit of the spirit of gentleness, it's helpful to know the opposite, which is superiority, heavy-handedness, and burdensome. And even it's helpful to know the counterfeit fruit of the spirit, which is timidity, self-consciousness, or being self-absorbed, getting at it a little deeper. So have you noticed an absence of courage from the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5? Have you seen courage in there? Well, some would say that courage is not a Christian virtue at all, and they would also say that Casper Milktoast is, is a true picture of a Christian. In a cartoon series in the 40s called The Timid Soul, Casper Milktoast is the man who speaks softly and gets hit with a big stick. The character's name is a deliberate misspelling of the name of a bland and fairly inoffensive food, Milktoast. Milk toast, light and easy to digest, is an appropriate food for someone with a weak or nervous stomach. 
In November 1945, the author was featured on the cover of Time magazine. And the, un- the accompanying article says, Millions of Americans know Casper Milktoast, as well as they know Tom Sawyer and Andrew Jackson, better than they know George Babbitt. They know him, in fact, almost as well as they know their own weaknesses. Because of the popularity of the character, the term milk toast came into general usage in American English as weak and ineffectual, or plain and unadventurous. And so this counterfeit fruit of the spirit of timidity, self-consciousness, or getting at it a little deeper, being self-absorbed, it's actually not gentleness at all. It's actually quite different, and it's a counterfeit fruit of the spirit, as the Bible would clearly state, as we're going to look at in this message. And so I was meeting for, with a friend of, of mine a few weeks ago, and he agreed to talk about faith and, and, and the Christian life. And one of his reasons for not coming to church and, and worshiping God is that he feels self-conscious when he comes in and he worships, and he feels like he just, he just can't bear that. And this is not a good reason because it's, act, it's good for us to feel convicted and pricked in our heart to come to repentance before God. And, it's, and, it, and it, it's good for us to feel that way in a sense that it actually reveals something about my friend and about even all of us if we're honest with ourselves at times, that timidity is actually a counterfeit fruit and being self-conscious and feeling that way and even being in a sense self-absorbed, that gets, a, gets at it a little deeper. And so that, that's the revealing of the underlying issue of our timidity or self-consciousness is that we can be self-absorbed at times. And so this weed of self-absorption blinds and it frustrates the grace of God where we throw the grace of God back in his face and we say, we don't want it. We don't want your grace. We don't want your gentleness to us. We don't want what you say in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. We don't want you to be gentle towards us. We don't need it. We can do things on our own. But it needs to be uprooted. We need to get at this and we need to deal with this in our own hearts and even help others to see it as well out of a gentleness spirit. And so why is this important to deal with? Well, Tim Keller said that this artificial fruit denies one's personhood, one's God-given abilities and talents. God has given every man some gift, so every man is worthwhile in God's eyes. This is not to deny our sinful depravity or our true guilt before God, but it is to assert that even the lowest person has a dignity, a value, and a uniqueness because he was made in God's image. Now, the artificial fruit denies all this, and it dehumanizes the individual so that he is no longer what God intended him to be. And in this passage, Jesus is calling those to turn from their self-absorbed ways. He's calling us to turn from them and to humble ourselves, to come to him, to take his yoke, to learn from him, and we can have this true eternal rest for our souls. This rest that is not given to us by the world, even though it's counterfeit and may please us at a time that's temporary, but it's a true rest that is eternal, not only here in the now, but also forever with Jesus. It's reviving, and Jesus shows us this. And the gospel in that actually changes our hearts to show this gentleness towards others, as we'll see in the text and further in this message. So the first point is come to Jesus. As Jesus said in verse 27, and in verse 28, but actually in verse 27. So who is Jesus calling to come to him? Who is it? Well, in verse 27, it says that it is anyone to whom Jesus chooses to reveal God the Father to. 
The Father can be known only through the Son, and Jesus expresses this in a direct invitation. So is it a direct invitation for those who are intoxicated with themselves, or is it a direct invitation for those who neither hunger nor thirst for God's grace? Is it a direct invitation to those who set no value on God? In one sense, no, it is not for them. As John Calvin said, it would be in vain, therefore, for Christ to invite these classes. And therefore, he turns to the wretched and the afflicted. He speaks of them as laboring or groaning under a burden and does not mean generally those who are oppressed with grief and vexations, but those who are overwhelmed by their sins, who are filled with an alarm at the wrath of God and are ready, are ready to sink under so weighty a burden. So it is an t- invitation for all who are weary with labor, who toil, who are tired, who lose heart, who are troubled, who are suffering, who feel fatigued, perhaps. Every kind of person, there is no distinction be- between social, economic, socioeconomic class or culture or race or even language but for all people. But it begs the question, perhaps even, but people think religion is burdensome. Okay, everyone's welcome, but I just feel that it's just a burden for me to follow Christ or, or religion at all. Well, the first obje- or they may feel that it's, they're not good enough. The first objection that you, feel, you may feel that religion is burdensome is that it's not true, as we'll see further in this message, but the second the Bible answers clearly to thinking that we're not good enough. It answers it in Luke 5.32, where Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So do we conjure up enough self-determination to come to Christ on our own accord? No. It is God drawing people to Jesus. It is God drawing us to him. It's, an, a mystery. it's a mystery in a sense that he works in and through us to fix our hearts to want to desire Jesus. As in John 6, 44 says, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. But get this, in the simple act of humbling oneself and coming to Jesus is God actually drawing you near. The simple act of you humbling yourself and coming to Jesus is God actually working in and through you and fixing your heart to come to Jesus. That's a beautiful mystery. That God works in and through us. He doesn't coerce our hearts. He actually fixes and transforms our hearts to come to him. And that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. And so, who else is Jesus calling to come to him? He's, he's also calling those who, who are heavy laden. Those who are burdened, who are caused to carry maybe something too heavy to bear, perhaps. This can be the difficulties and pressures in life in general. That you may feel kind of like an overgrilled hamburger, tossed and turned too many times, or maybe even beaten and battered too much, where the juices are squeezed out to the point that you are just have nothing left, to the point where you feel like a hard hockey puck. Well, well, why is Jesus calling those who are weary and heavy laden? And maybe you felt like this at times. Well, the context proves that. It was those who were oppressed by the extensive list of rules the Pharisees then interpreted for themselves from God's law. From God's law of the Old Testament, the Pharisees would take certain things in God's law of the Old Testament and add things to it, add obligations, and put them on the people that were really unbearable and hardly anyone could even meet 
to the times where, at times where people just felt like they just were going to give up on following God. Well, Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And this can lead to a conception about Jesus and religion in general that God is heavy burdened or heavy, heavy-handed and it's burdensome. But the text says that's not true. As Jesus says in verse 28, he says, I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. So there's two times that this is stated, that you will have rest. Hence, the, notice the duality in the statement too. That Jesus first gives the rest. You can't find rest for your souls at least unless it's there to be taken or had or found or what have you. And so Jesus is the true source. It can't, you can't find rest unless, true eternal rest unless Jesus first gives it. And so Jesus does first give it and he is the source. And therefore God moves in us so that we can find this rest and we can humble ourselves to him. And so what rest is this? It it is actually not only a here and now rest in the midst of life's difficulties, but it also is an eternal rest for your soul from Jesus alone. I think St. Augustine says it best, as Day said in his prayer this morning, he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So let our miseries drive us to seek Christ and his eternal rest. Maybe you felt this way recently, or maybe you feel this way this morning. And maybe you can think of a time where you felt this way before. And there will be times, as the Bible promises, different types of suffering at times. But Jesus is saying that if you are sunk beneath life's difficulty, difficulties, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. So let us shake off the luxuries of this world and lay, every, lay aside every false confidence and come to Jesus for this two, true eternal rest for our souls. So Jesus stretches out his gentle hand to you who are weary and heavy burdened to revive you from your sins, maybe from the sins of another or just life's pressures in general. For Jesus alone can give this true eternal rest for your souls. This rest Jesus offers, is, it's not a relaxation from the demands of what God requires of us in obedience to him. Rather, it is a new relationship with God that makes it possible to obey God. How? Because it's out of a love for God because he first loved us. That's how it's possible. It's God's love to us that we are compelled by his spirit to love him and obey him. It is not a removal of any yoke, but a new and a gentle yoke, which makes burdens light. And, and, and the only requirement... And coming to Jesus is that you must recognize your need for help and humble yourself to take upon his yoke. As the second point in the passage that I've pointed out here is that we must take upon Jesus' yoke in verse 29. Take, well, it begs some curiosity. What does it mean to take upon Jesus' yoke? Well, the word take, when you look at the original Greek language of take is arrow, perhaps, where it means to take up, to pick up, perhaps even to carry. And what about yoke? Well, when I first saw this verse, I thought of an egg yoke. I love eggs, and I know some people in here have many eggs, perhaps even almost a carton of eggs a day. I won't name any names, but 
Um, but actually, a yoke is more like a balance scale. It's actually not an egg yoke, but it's a balance scale. It's picture two oxen bound together to do work. Like a wooden frame, crossbar, crossbars joining two animals together for pulling heavy loads. This can be a metaphor for one's relationship to another person. And it also can refer to the religious law of the Pharisees, where you feel burdened and tied down by them. Where their yoke, your, their yoke was loading people down with unnecessary obligations. Hence the phrase, place a yoke on the neck. You may have heard that before. And so, for example, when the law of God is understood as a way for one to earn salvation, when you look at the law of God and you feel that you have to conjure up enough strength to earn what it is God may bestow upon you, it becomes a yoke of slavery because the Bible says you can't earn your salvation. The Bible says, actually, in Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery of sin. It's talking about there. And actually, Jesus' yoke of discipleship brings rest through simple, wholehearted commitment to him. As it says in 1 John 5.3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So the purpose of a yoke is to make it easier to carry or pull a burden you may have. And if there is a burden, it is better to have a yoke than not to have one. So a yoke is good. It's a good thing. But what kind of yoke is Jesus talking about in this passage? Well, Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light in verse 30. How? How is it light and how is it easy? Well, Jesus is offering those who have heavy burdens to carry a new yoke. That will not add to your oppression, but it will ease the burden of it and bring you rest. So Jesus' yoke, or balance scale, is easy. Another word for it is kindly. Jesus' burden is, or load, is light, not heavy. So how is this so? Well, because it's from the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. And thus, he is the only one who can provide true rest to our souls. So, but the truth is, is that we can't obey Jesus perfectly. We can't obey God perfectly. We all fail to do so. No matter how hard we try, but what we, when we entrust ourselves to Jesus and depend solely on his grace, we are able to obey Jesus. And it is easy and light because we are dependent on his grace towards us to do so. And we are enabled to take upon Jesus' yoke because of what he did for us on the cross. And also that the gospel produces gentleness in us by what Jesus did on that cross and through his resurrection. How, specifically? Well, in his humility. He humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. He was self-forgetful in a sense that he put aside his own eternal glory to lay down his life for you and for me, subjecting himself to the punishment that we deserve for our sins, that he stood in our place as a substitute for our sins, taking upon that wrath of God that we ourselves deserved, And as Jesus was stretched out on the cross, he was saying, God was saying to you and to me that I love you this much. The bounds are endless in a sense that this was the ultimate act of humility and gentleness that God displayed to us. 
paying the price that we could have never paid, enduring God's wrath that we could have never endured, in our place that we could have a reconciled relationship with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, in eternal glory and joy with Jesus forever. That's an amazing thing. And this is a gift of God's grace, the ultimate act of gentleness through his death and resurrection, conquering the power of death, and by faith alone, we are also given this same gentleness. We are credited with it by the work of Christ's gentleness. And it transforms our hearts to be gentle as Jesus was gentle, that we have that same gentleness when we put our faith in Christ and we depend on his grace, that we can show that gentleness to other people, even when we don't want to be gentle. We can trust Jesus to help us to do so. And this gentleness God gives by his, his spirit working in us, it's granted to us by repentance and faith. Not any merit or work we have done, but on the sole work of Christ on the cross, shed for us, his blood shed for us. That we are declared not guilty. We are declared justified by faith alone. We are declared in a sense that we have no room to boast, but it is God who did the work in and through Christ. But, and, and then all, all that glory is given to God and, and not us. And so in this, we are counted with the spirit of gentleness. And so if you're not a Christian, I plead with you, repent of your sins. Come before God and say, Lord, I've, I've failed miserably. I have not lived up to your law, and I have not done what I should have done. And actually, I found you boring, and I didn't want anything to do with you at times. Come to him, and I, there's too many sins that I can even think of. But you don't have to understand it all intellectually. You can just come with, to God with a simple childlike faith, and Lord, I repent of my sins, and accept Jesus Christ in your heart for what he's done for you. That accepting him in his heart, as, as it, I think Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead, you will be saved. What a beautiful promise. Saved from your sins, saved from hell, from God's wrath. In eternity forever with Jesus Christ and in eternal joy with him, in a relationship with him forever. <clears throat> and in that, Jesus revives us. He revives us when we come to him with his gentleness credited to our account and enable us, uh, enables us to show that same gentleness to others. And so, we must not only take upon Jesus' yoke of gentleness, but also, thirdly, we must learn from Jesus' gentleness. In verse 29, it says how we can learn from Jesus' gentleness. It commands us to. Jesus' yoke is one of learning. It is a lifelong process of learning on what on to do what God requires of, of us, to be taught. So the question is, are you teachable? Are you willing to humble yourselves and be taught by the word of God and allow his spirit to work in and through you? And so Jesus says, for I am gentle, not timid, but humble and self-forgetful, gentle. Gentleness arises from an understanding of ourselves, and it gives us insight to the needs of others. We have conflicts with people every day, and when they become obstacles in our way, we get angry with them because things aren't going the way we want. But actually, this is actually revealing in direct proportion of our insecurity and instability in life and, and shows us more about ourselves in, in that way. But gentleness helps cure this. In another respect, one chapter later in Matthew 12, 20, G, uh, Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
Picture an amaryllis bulb, an amaryllis bulb flower, that is. Um, and it's on your dining room table. And you have a tablecloth that's pretty long. It almost goes down to the floor. And when you put your legs under it, you can feel it and sometimes it gets in the way. And picture a toddler that comes by your dining room table and he swipes the tablecloth from out, out from under the amaryllis bulb flower. And the amaryllis bulb falls over and it bends. It's not broken completely, but it somewhat snaps. You try to fix it, but there really is no hope for it. So you break off the stem and you hope for another one to grow. Well, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does not break a bruised reed. He doesn't say, this person didn't have what it takes. Snap. He does not break a bruised reed. He may discipline us at times. And maybe even because of our sins, we are bruised or sins of another person or life's difficulties. Jesus doesn't kick you when you're down. Rather, he meets us where we're at. He uses soft bandages and splints and props to come under us and beside us and above us and around us to show us his gentleness. And his gentleness is reviving. So you may feel broken and weak this morning or can think of a time when you felt like that or you know someone who is. But in Jesus' hand, he, a bruised reed he will not break. Rather, it will be revived by his gentleness. And so no matter how hopeless you think your situation may be at times, his gentleness does not break, but it revives. Perhaps you may even feel that your spiritual lamp is is out, or it's a little spark on a candle, or it's not even a spark, it's a little smoldering and smoking wick. But the word of the Lord is for you this morning. It's for you, and in Jesus' hands, the the flame of that or the smoldering wick of that will be safe because he will not quench your little spiritual spark or smoldering wick, but he will be gentle and understanding and fan it into a flame for his glory. And so in all of this, we have three implications from the text. The first one, humble yourselves and come to Jesus. If you are weary and heavy laden, then rest in Jesus' reviving gentleness. That is, we are sinners who don't deserve Jesus' reviving gentleness. But Jesus offers it freely. He offers it freely, so repent and rest in his reviving gentleness. Second implication, take upon Jesus' easy yoke of gentleness. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery or false belief that religion or Jesus is burdensome. Because the text says he's not. But rest on the reviving gentleness of Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross out of his great love for you. And we will never have this true rest for our souls unless we've set our hope fully on Jesus and his gospel. And in that, we are able to possess the spirit of gentleness and extend that to others. This is not an easy thing or something that happens instantaneously. As the Bible says, it's a step-by-step process in sanctifying us to be more like Jesus Christ. But through setting our hope on Jesus, we can study his word, we can read it, we can meditate over it, we can pray over it, and we can worship him through it. We can pray and talk to God and worship him through the, these means. And that's, that's what it means to take upon Jesus' yoke of easy, easy yoke of gentleness in a sense that we are inclined to see how he 
shows it to us, and then extended that to others by his spirit. And third implication is learn from Jesus' gentleness. He has a spirit of gentleness and forgiveness and healing for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. He is only severe with the unrepentant. For those who don't repent of their sins, he had harsh words for those people. But still, forgiveness is offered to them. That's a huge sign of his grace. So therefore, repent and rest in Jesus' reviving gentleness. You are not beyond healing unless you are beyond humbling. And so, three implications are humble yourselves and come to Jesus. Let's do that. Take upon Jesus' yoke, easy yoke of gentleness. Let's do that together. And learn from Jesus' gentleness. Let's do that as well. Let's pray with, together on God's word. Dear Lord, I give you thanks and praise for your word and that you would continue to incline our hearts to it and not to self-absorption, but being absorbed with you and your grace and your gentleness and how you show it to us. You meet us where we're at. Maybe we're a smoldering wick or a bruised reed or we know people who are. Enable us by your spirit to show that same gentleness that you've shown us to them. And as the hymn of lead kindly light, but I'm going to replace it with the word lead gentle light, gives the same meaning and punch to how you see us, Lord, through your son Jesus Christ. And it says, lead gentle kindly light. Amidst the gray and gloom, the night is long and I am far from home. Here in the dark, I do not ask to see the path ahead one step enough for me. Lead on, lead on, gentle light. I was not ever willing to be led. I could have strayed, but I ran instead. In spite of fear, I followed my pride. My eyes could see, but my heart was blind. Lead on, lead on, gentle light. And in the night, when I was afraid, your feet beside my own on the way, each stumbling step where other men have trod, shortens the road leaning, leading home to my God. Lead on, lead on, my God, my God. Lead on, lead on, gentle light. We pray that you would do that in us and through us and beyond us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.